Good morning. How's everybody this morning? I want to personally congratulate every one of you that's here on time on the, the, the hardest Sunday of the year to be here on time. <laughs> it just messes with you when your clocks change themselves. It used to be, you know, you could forget and then not come, but then the phones, they do it on their own, and, and it's just, it's, I'm glad that you're here, and they're bringing the lights up. Oh, there are people here. That's, that's good. I'm, it's, it's good to see you. Um, thank you for praying uh, during the course of this past couple of weeks that I've been gone. It, it really is good to be back. I had the privilege of uh, participating in, speaking in a, a conference at, uh, in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, a missions conference, where we were talking about some of the opportunities that are out there. This past uh, Friday, I had a chance to talk to 500 high schoolers, and, uh, and then right after that, 350 junior high schoolers, which are, you know, that's, that's scarier than talking to headhunters as far as I'm concerned, but um, uh, we I just, I didn't talk to them about missions. I didn't talk to them about missions, at least not directly, because I'm convinced that the world doesn't need more missionaries. It needs more godly men and women, uh, young people who are going to protect their future so that they are open to whatever God leads them to do, but you know, futures are such bright, shiny things, but they are also incredibly fragile, as we all know. And it is simple to make a misstep that, that uh, just ruins everything. And, and so I was asking them to make those decisions beforehand. The most exciting thing for, for me was uh, uh, the, at the very end of the conference, after that last meeting that we all had together on Sunday evening, uh, we spent some time with a young couple I won't mention their names, but uh, we spent some time, time with a young couple who are already involved in missions, uh, in, in a missions ministry to international students in university and that want to be involved in something that gives them the opportunity to, to be more directly involved with discipleship. And so they, they asked if we could open a conversation that by God's grace will have them uh, joining global empowerment and that, that work in ministry over there as we continue to expand into other tribes uh, there, uh, you know, between the, the coffee plantation and other things. So uh, thank you for letting me go and do that, though <laughs> you couldn't have stopped me. Um, thank you for letting me go and do that. Also, I, I, I want to say that David and Bethany Jackson, uh, whom our church supports, arrived in Malaysia uh, I said that out loud again over the air. Sorry about that. Arrived in a place over there in Asia um, uh, to get back uh, busy doing uh, what, um, what's on their heart over there and, and reaching out to folks. Uh, they're, they're there safely. They are back at home. They don't have to quarantine. And, uh, and, and thank you for praying for them. Uh, maybe you didn't even know that they were on their way back, but... I trust that you did, and, and thank you for standing behind them. Thank you for supporting them as well as a, a church. This morning, we're going to be continuing our studies in Paul's first letter to Timothy in a series entitled, Be Strong in Grace. You can see it there, and this is part seven, and entitled, Fight the Battle Well. And we'll be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Last week, Brian led us through verses 15 to 17 of chapter 1, where Paul used his own personal testimony to show the power of the gospel and its ability to transform a life. And because his life was so changed, Paul became the, the poster child for the Jesus plus nothing movement. 
Uh, Paul had grown up with the idea that God's law would save him, but it was his devotion to the law that ultimately led him to, to try to kill and destroy the followers of Jesus. But then as Paul was traveling to Damascus to arrest any Jesus followers he, he found there, Paul instead met Jesus, who confronted Paul with what Paul was believing and then saved him from his sin. And based on that experience, Paul came to believe that Jesus wanted to do for everyone what he had done for the Apostle Paul. And in that light, you remember that Brian walked us through four questions. If you were here, who, what, why, and now what? And, and he applied those four questions to a saying that Paul said was a trustworthy saying that deserved full acceptance. Those are the words that Paul stacked up about this saying. That saying that deserves full acceptance is this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Keep in mind that Paul did not say that we should work toward accepting and believing that saying. He didn't say that at all. Paul said that that saying deserves full acceptance. Now, like Brian said, that saying was probably from a hymn or, or some kind of catechism with which the followers of Jesus would have been familiar at the time when he wrote. And, and when you write a song or a catechism, I, I haven't written too many songs, but, but I do spend a lot of time trying to reduce larger truths into simpler words that people can, can understand and relate to and perhaps even remember. But if you write anything else, anything that you might expect other people to memorize, you must choose your words very carefully. Because you're taking a large concept, like I said, and, and boiling it down to a, to a power-packed, a few power-packed words that will impact people while at the same time will be simple enough for people to remember and keep in the front of their minds. Now, we've all sung songs at one time or another, and when we take the time to think through the words of the song, we realize that the sentiment is nice, but the words miss the mark that Scripture sets. There's a song on one of my playlists, and, and from time to time it finds my way, its way into my ears through my headphones, and I don't want to attack the song or the lyricist, but I do want to illustrate what I mean when I say that some songs are full of beautiful sentiment, but they fall short of a worthiness of full acceptance. The particular song that I'm talking about has beautiful lyrics. They say, I am the thorn in your crown, but you love me anyway. I am the sweat on your brow, but you love me anyway. I am the nail in your wrist, but you love me anyway. I am Judas' kiss but you love me anyway. And I get it. Those words describe me. But they describe the person that I was. I was all of those things, but Christ Jesus came into the world to save me from those things. And because Jesus came to save me, he's given me his righteousness. He took my sin away, and he gave me his righteousness in the place of my sin. And that means that when God looks at me, he no longer sees my sin. He sees only the righteousness of Christ. That's all he sees. And that's not because I've tried hard to be a good person, but because Christ Jesus came into this world to save a sinner like me. And the same thing is true of you today. If you believe the good news that Jesus died for you, that he was buried, and that he was raised again for you, then you are saved by his blood. And all that comes from, the un from, from understanding the saying that Paul shared with us last week. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was his goal. And Paul told us that that saying deserves full acceptance. And full acceptance means that we should take every word 
to heart. So if I tell you that, that Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph or Moses or Billy Graham came into this world to save sinners, make sure that to set me straight. Jay, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If I tell you that Christ came to Israel or America to save sinners, make sure you set me straight. No, Jay, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If I say that Jesus came into the world to help us become better people so that we could live better lives, make sure that you set me straight. No, Jay, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. Those other sayings are meaningful, but they don't deserve full acceptance. But one saying that does deserve word-for-word full acceptance is this. Maybe you can even say it with me. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So simple. Jesus shows immense patience as he waits for us to accept that saying fully. We come to Jesus just as we are. But if we're going to wait until we've had time to work on being a better person before we come to Jesus, I can tell you this morning, we will never come to Jesus at all. I love the way Brian phrased it last week. Jesus showed the utmost of patience to the foremost of sinners. The utmost of patience to the foremost of sinners. And of course, Paul was the one who wrote that. Paul expressed the fact that he believed himself to be the utmost of sinners. He was trying to kill Christians. And when Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus, Jesus said to Paul, why are you persecuting not my people? Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that's when Saul says, to whom am I speaking, please? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul was doing it in ignorance, thinking that he was doing the right thing. He ended up understanding that he was doing the wrong thing. So, uh, he ended up, Paul, Jesus showed the utmost patience to the foremost of sinners, and, and, and I know we don't want to quibble over that at all, but, but when someone comes to you and, and tells you that they are so bad that they cannot be saved, you can bring them back to this trustworthy saying from last week and remind them that the worst of sinners has already been saved. At the same time, you may talk to another person who tells you that they don't need to be saved because they've spent their lives working hard to keep the law, to to make themselves acceptable to God. And if that happens, you can also bring that person to the trustworthy saying from last week because it makes it clear to us that helping good people to keep the law had nothing to do with why Jesus came. Nothing to do with why Jesus came into this world. Christ Jesus came into this world to save Oh, that was rousing. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Sinners like me. Sinners like you. Forgive me. I love you all. But we're a mess. And that's the reason that Christ Jesus came. We're we're so messed up, we can't help ourselves. And so he came and he finished it all. Jesus paid it all. In other words, if I come to Jesus as a good person who's trying hard to keep the law, there is no reason, there is no reason for me to believe that Jesus will save me. But if I come to him as a sinner who needs to be saved, then there is every reason to believe that he will save me because in case we've forgotten to mention it, that's why he came into this world. He is seeking out 
sinners. And if that describes you on some level, then you are you're just the person he's looking for this morning. He came into this world to save sinners. He's here in this church this morning to save sinners. We said it often right here from this platform. Jesus didn't die to make bad people good. Jesus died to make dead people alive. That's what Jesus did. Brian finished up last week by quoting J.I. Packer who said, there have always been some who have found the Father's grace so overwhelmingly wonderful that they can never forget it. They can never lose sight of it. They just can't, they just can't, they can't help but sharing it with other people. They can't help but, but, but just relishing the moment that, that Jesus stepped into your life, into your story. He invaded your story and saved you from your sin. And that ought to be something that overwhelms us. Paul was overwhelmed. Uh, he, he, he burst into song there in, in, in 1 Timothy as he wrote to Timothy. And I expect that there were times when he even just started dancing. I don't know. I, I really have put the, the Apostle Paul pictured that way. Every time he thought about the power and the beauty of the simple message of the gospel, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and he, rose again, he was raised again on the third day according to, from this, to the Scriptures. And from that simple message, Paul draws this trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Work with me on this one. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Would you like to try that again? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And as we fully accept that saying, it ought to do two things in our lives. It ought to prompt us <laughs> to break into song and dance when we're in a place where it won't, we won't scare people with our singing and dancing. I, you would be terrified if I were to start dancing right now. And so I, I choose to do that sometimes there at my desk. And just, oh my goodness, look what God has done. And it ought to prompt us to share that trustworthy saying with everyone that we know so that they will know that Christ Jesus came into this world to save them. Because apart from Jesus' death on the cross, there is no way that anyone can be saved. And I'm, I, for one, am glad that, that we don't have to teach people how to do calculus so that they can be saved. We don't have to teach people what E equals MC squared means and force them to be able to explain it so that they can be saved. We don't have to teach people 613 laws that they have to keep so that they can be saved. We can share, simply share, the pure, simple message of the gospel that helps us to understand that we were all born sinners, but Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He died for you. He died in your place. He was buried and he rose again for you so that you can live, so that you can have life, a new life that begins at the moment you believe. And before you start thinking that that's just too easy, I want to remind you once again that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and none of that was easy for him. None of it. It was the hardest, most difficult, most oppressing work that has ever been done on the face of the planet or in the history of the universe. None of that was easy for him. But he did the hard work of salvation so that you can be saved by simply believing the good news. 
So don't add anything to the message of the gospel and don't take anything away from the message of the gospel. For example, there was a movement in Paul's day that taught that people could be saved by keeping the law. You've heard me say that. You've heard Brian say that as he's been up here teaching. They were adding keeping the law to the message of the gospel. But when you do that, for example, you're telling people that what Christ did was not enough. That's what's implied by that message. What Christ did was not enough. There are still things that you need to do in order to be saved. And you're telling people that Jesus' finished work needs to be supplemented by our good works if we're ever expecting to be saved. And this morning, we're going to see that adding the law or anything else to the message of the gospel is not just a difference of opinion. Adding the law or anything else to the gospel is actually blasphemy. And I know that's a strong term, but we're going to encounter that term this morning. I drew the straw on this one, so, you know, we're just going to buckle your seatbelts. It's going to get turbulent before we're done. Because when we add anything to the gospel, we undermine the finished work of Christ. Because we're speaking of the work of Christ as though it's not finished. And when God does something miraculous that only God can do, and then we speak of it as something that's, co that's common that anyone or even someone can do, that's the very definition of blasphemy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And when we teach sinners that there's something that they can do to save themselves, we're putting ourselves in a very dangerous place. Not to mention the danger that our hearers will be in when, because of what we've told them, they try to earn their salvation on their own. If I can be saved today by keeping the law or by being a good person, then Christ died for nothing. If I can be saved today by being a good person, then God should not have required Jesus to die on the cross. Jesus died on the cross to save sinners because there was and is no other way for sinners to be saved. Period. And I know I appear to be inflexible in, in this, and if I appear to be inflexible, it's because I am inflexible in this. I don't want to scare you. I really don't. But I will not back down on this message. The Apostle Paul was beheaded outside this, the wall of the city of Rome because he would not back down on this message. It's essential that we understand. There's no other way for sinners to be saved. So make sure you know and understand the pure, simple message of the gospel and then tell everyone you meet that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Because if you share the gospel, God is going to be worshipped. That's how this works. When I share the gospel and someone believes the gospel, the natural response of their heart is to worship God for what God has done for them. Because people will know that Jesus, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But if you don't share the gospel, then no one's going to be saved. And no one will worship because no one will know that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And in the end, it ought to prompt us to land where Paul landed last week. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's okay to say amen in this church, by the way. Be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. It's the finished work. The work of salvation has been done for you.
And all that's required is that you believe that, that you step into the presence of Almighty God and say, thank you for what you've done for me in, t- in taking my place. With that, it's time to move on. And as you know, we always do that by reading the passage that we'll be unpacking today. So if you would, stand with me as we take on the next thought uh, in, in Paul's line of reasoning in his first letter to Timothy. Read aloud with me if you would. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme Thank you. You can take your seats. That's as far as we're going to go, although that does help us to finish chapter 1 of, uh, of 1 Timothy. Uh, I'm, I'm always thankful when I hear you read God's Word because I know God always adds His blessing. Uh, whenever we read His Word, whenever we, come, uh, whenever we verbalize His truth. Today I want to tell you a story that comes from the Old Testament, and as always, I've chosen to tell this particular story because it relates directly to the truth we'll be looking at this morning. The story comes from 1 Kings chapter 13 and recounts something that unfolded in a discussion between two Old Testament prophets. We don't know the name of either of these men, uh, but the fact that, that one, one, other than the fact that, that one is called the man of God, and the other is called the old prophet. The man of God and the old prophet. And if you keep those two straight, then, then you'll probably understand the story. The man of God and the old prophet. Got it? I'll have to shorten the story somewhat for the, the sake of time. It's a long and involved story. Um, so you may want to make a note of, of 1 Kings 13. And take a few minutes this afternoon to look at this story. Because it's, it's absolutely fascinating in my mind. But be listening for what the man of God does, and then be listening for what the old prophet says to the man of God. And with that truncated background, this is the story from God's Word from 1 Kings chapter 13. God told the man of God to go from the region of Judah to the city of Bethel, to the city of Bethel, to confront King Jeroboam as he was standing by the altar. Offering, offering, making an offering to a false god. The man of God confronted King Jeroboam by speaking to the altar itself. The man of God shout, shouted to the altar, at the altar, Altar! Altar! The Lord says that a son named Josiah will be born in the line of David, and on this very altar, King Josiah will sacrifice the priests of the high places who are themselves making sacrifices on this altar to false gods. The man of God said some other pretty grisly things to the altar before saying, here's the proof that this will happen. This altar will be split apart, and the ashes will be spilled on the ground. As you can imagine, King Jeroboam didn't like being called out like that, so he stretched out his hand, and you can picture it, make a movie in your own mind. He stretched out his hand and pointed at the man of God and ordered the guards to seize him. <laughs> but as King Jeroboam stood pointing at the man of God, God dried up and withered his arm so that he couldn't pull it back. And at that very moment, the altar split apart, and the ashes poured out of it just as the man of God had prophesied. 
King Jeroboam was beside himself and began to plead with the man of God. Please intercede with the Lord your God for me, he says. Please, please pray that Yahweh will restore my hand and arm. So the man of God prayed and the king's arm was restored. King Jeroboam was so thrilled that he asked the man of God to come back to his house to, you know, let's sit down together, let's have a meal. I, I don't know what he was planning on cooking, but it was going to be something good. And, and then he said, let's, let's eat together, and then I have a gift for you, and I'll send you away with that. But the man of God was quick with an answer for the king. Even if you give me half of your possessions, the man of God said, I will not go with you, nor will I eat bread or drink water here in this place. The man of God then explained why he said that. I, I won't go with you or eat anything while I'm here because the Lord himself commanded me. God himself commanded me. You must not eat bread or drink water while you're there in Bethel. And you must go home by a different route than the, the route that you chose to go to Bethel. The man of God took the word of God seriously. He didn't go with the king or eat or drink anything and while he was in Bethel. And now that it was time to leave, he went home by a completely different route. And this is where the old prophet comes into the story. It seems that the old prophet was married and had a family, and the old prophet's sons came to him and told him the story of what the man of God had done that day there at the altar. You know, the part of the story that I just told you. The old prophet asked his sons where the man of God had gone after all of this stuff went down, all this stuff happened with the king and the altar, and the old prophet's sons told him, well, he went off in that direction. They pointed in the direction that he had. And so the, 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 the old prophet says, well, saddle my donkey. I'm, I'm going to go after him. The old prophet found the man of God sitting under an oak tree and asked him a question. Are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am, the man of God replied. So the prophet said to the man of God, come home with me and eat. But the man of God told the old prophet the same thing he had told Jer King Jeroboam. I can't turn back with you and go with you, nor can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place because the Lord told me not to. But then for some reason, the old prophet said, I too am a prophet, as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring the man of God back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. Sadly, at this point, the scripture actually says the old prophet was lying to the man of God. Man, I got so no reason to distrust the old prophet, so he went back to the house of the old prophet, and he ate and drank in his house. And while they were sitting there at the table, the old prophet really did get a word from the Lord. He jumped to his feet, and he began to shout and point his finger at the, at the man of God and, says, and said to him, this is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and not kept the command that the Lord your God gave you. The old prophet went on to explain to the man of God, you came back and you ate bread and you drank water in the place where God told you not to eat or drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your ancestors. Now That sounds ominous, but not necessarily threatening until the moment came when the man of God left the house of the old prophet. You see, when the man of God had finished eating and drinking, the, the prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him, and after the man of God left the home of the old prophet, he was attacked and killed by a lion. The lion left the body by the roadside, and some people saw the body of the man of God beside the road, and, and they went and told the old prophet that they had found 
a body by the side of the road. And when the old prophet heard that, he said, it's the man of God. It's the man of God who defied the word of the Lord. The Lord has given him over to the lion which has mauled him and killed him as the word of the Lord warned him. And, well, there's more to the story, but that's what's, all that's really left is the burial of the man of God. So let me just say here, that's the story from God's word. At this point, I have to ask a question. Does any of that seem fair to you? If you really listen to the story, you're probably as irked about that story as I am. God himself had spoken to the man of God and told him not to eat or drink while he was in Bethel. But then the old prophet lied. He lied to the man of God and said, God told me that you should come back to Bethel and eat with me. But God hadn't said anything of the kind. The old prophet was lying to the man of God. So the old prophet was lying, but at the end of the story, it's the man of God who pays with his life. The man who was lied to who pays with his life. The man of God, who, the one who was lied to, gets dead, and the old prophet who told the lie lives to, to prophesy another day. That just doesn't seem fair. We want the old prophet, who our sense of justice demands that the old prophet, the man who told the lie to be punished for his actions, but it's the man of God who believed the lie who gets punished instead. We expect the man who told the lie to die, but it's the man who believed the lie that dies in the end. So what's going on here? Well, I'm not going to pretend that I even begin to understand all the complexities of what's going on here, but when we, when we suss out what happened to the man of God, there does seem to be some direct bearing on what we've been saying all along during our studies in 1 Timothy so far. And when we suss it out, if we can't say anything else, we can say that God is very jealous when it comes to his word. He is very jealous when it comes to his word. Now, I'm up in front this morning teaching, and I don't know if you know, how, if you know me well enough to know how seriously I take the responsibility that God has given me to teach the, his word to you. It, it's clear to me that if I intentionally deceive you when I teach the word, God will hold me accountable for misleading you. But don't miss this. According to the story from 1 Kings, if I deceive you, God will hold me accountable for deceiving you, but God will also hold you accountable for letting me deceive and mislead you. We all have responsibility when it comes to God's word. I misled you, but you let me do it. And in those places where God has spoken clearly, that makes both of us guilty, all of us guilty. God spoke clearly to the man of God and told him not to eat or drink while he was in Bethel. And because God had spoken clearly to the man of God, he should have seen through the deception that the old prophet brought. The man of God should have believed and done what God clearly revealed to him, and he should have refused to do what the old prophet told him to do, even if the old prophet did play the God card. Like I mentioned earlier, this has direct bearing on what we've learned so far from the first chapter of Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy and on the passage that we'll be looking at this morning. <sighs> okay, take a deep breath. And let's unpack this just a little more in the three minutes that we have. Uh-uh, not going to happen. Um, I want to remind you about a word that we've run into three times in this first chapter of 1 Timothy, the word command. Look at 1 Timothy 1, 1 to 5. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, 
Mercy, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Lord, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you can command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. <laughs> Paul was an apostle because Jesus had commanded him to go and do the work of an apostle. As Paul did that work, he urged Timothy to command certain people not to teach false doctrines or endless genealogies. Now, there's a lot of commanding going on there, and all that commanding can make church sound like a, a place that's harsh and demanding. So to avoid that, Paul goes on to say to Timothy that Timothy does need, indeed need to command the false teachers to stop teaching false doctrines, but Timothy needs to remember that his goal is not to be harsh. Paul didn't want him to be harsh as he did that. Instead, his goal is love as he commands others. Paul loved Timothy just as much as he would have loved his uh, Timothy, much as just as much as he would have loved him if he were his own son. And so Paul commands Timothy to take certain steps in his ministry as he takes on the enemies of the gospel. And because Paul loves Timothy like a son, he's teaching Timothy to react and how to react when the gospel comes under attack. Think about it. When soldiers attack uh, come under attack from an invading army. Either the invading army or the defending army will win the battle, right? So that is an outcome for both armies, but we all know that it's possible for our side to win the battle, but the individual soldiers who are on either side may survive the battle, or they may be wounded in the battle, or they may be taken prisoner in the battle, or, and, and of course, sadly, they may even be killed in action. And that's why commanding officers not only train entire battalions in the act of warfare, in the art of warfare, they also make sure that each individual soldier knows how to defend himself while he is defending the freedom and liberty of the country that he represents. And in the United States, for a soldier, defending the freedom of the United States amounts to defending the Constitution of the United States. And I say that because every member of the armed forces is required to promise when he or she enlists. I, they will say with their hand up, I, John R. Jackson, or state your name there, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. Did you catch that? I will support and defend the Constitution. The reason that members of the armed forces are required to promise that is because any threat to the Constitution is a threat to America. Our enemies know that they can't take the power out of the Constitution, and they also know that the only way to take America down is to take the Constitution away from Americans. Because if you take the Constitution away from America, then America will cease to exist. And for those of you who are sitting there thinking that the Democrats or the Republicans are destroying the Constitution and destroying America, I, I have one thing to say. Stop it. Stop it. That sentiment is based on social media rhetoric and claptrap, and it's time to step away 
from social media and back to God's word that tells us that we are to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. That we are to reach out to them with the good news of the gospel. Not stand around and throw rocks through their windows. But having said that, let's get back to what we're talking about. The enemies of America will always be enemies of our Constitution because they know that if they succeed in destroying the Constitution, they will succeed in destroying America. And that should sound familiar to you because it parallels something that we've been saying since we started 1 Timothy. The enemy of our souls knows that he can't take the power out of the gospel. And because he knows that, he also knows that the only way to take down the church is to take the gospel away from the church. Because if you take the gospel away from the church, then the church will cease to exist. When America is at war with their enemies, it's the Constitution that's at stake. And that's why the Constitution must be defended. But the church is also at war with its enemies. And the enemies of the church are always enemies of the gospel. That they've learned over the years that they can't take the power out of the gospel, but they can take the gospel away from the church. The enemies of the church attack the church by attacking the gospel and I'm telling you today that the gospel always has been and always will be under attack. The attack on the gospel started way back in Paul's day. And Paul was, consi was consist consistently defending the gospel from those who sought to change it. In fact, in Philippians 1.16, Paul said, I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Paul believed that God put him here on, the, on planet Earth expressly for the purpose of defending the gospel. And for those of you who are wondering why we're talking about this again, look what Paul says in verse 18 of this passage. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well. There's that word command again for the fourth time in chapter 1. And it's starting to sound to me like Paul thinks we're at war. And if it sounds to you like Paul thinks we're at war, that's only because Paul thinks we're at war. The enemy attacks the church by attacking the gospel. And when the enemy attacks the gospel, Paul wants all of us to put up a good fight in defending the gospel. And remember, we defend the church by defending the gospel. And we defend the gospel by making sure that the enemy doesn't take the gospel away from us by changing it. We have to hold on to what we believe. We have to make sure that our lives line up with what we believe. The gospel is the power of God that saves people, which means two things. We have to share the gospel with others. And we must, and we must allow the gospel to change us so that our lives back up our words. Because if my life doesn't back up my words, there's no way that I can maintain a good conscience. And if I don't maintain a good conscience then I have no right expecting that the gospel will change other people because I haven't allowed the gospel to change me. That's what Paul is talking about when we add verse 19 to verse 18. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and so suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. They suffered shipwreck. It's that serious. 
So the gospel must be foundational in our lives. The gospel must lie at the core of everything that we believe, everything that we say, everything that we do. And that's why we've been saying all along that it's absolutely essential that you and I understand the gospel. That's why we've been saying that it's not okay to be confused about the gospel. And for those of you who've been thinking, well, I am confused about the gospel, and now you're telling me that that's no, it's not okay for me to be confused, and, and that, that doesn't seem fair. For those of you who may be thinking that, let me phrase it this way. If you're in a place in your life where you're confused about the gospel, that may be okay, but it is not okay to stay confused about the gospel. If you're confused about the gospel today, then let me say this. Don't rest. Don't walk out those doors this morning until you fully understand and believe the good news that Jesus died for you, died for your sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. I'm telling you that it's not okay to be confused about that simple message. And I say that because of what's at stake this morning. And to understand what's at stake, I have seven minutes left here. To understand what's at stake, we'll have to read the entirety of the passage for this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 to 20 says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them you might fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over, over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now, we're not sure who Alexander is, but we can say that, that there are at least three Alexanders mentioned in the book of Acts, but it's unlikely that any of them are the guy that Paul handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. I did my homework on that, and I'm confident there's no connection between this Alexander and the Alexanders in Acts. Hymenaeus, on the other hand, is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Acts. But his name is going to come up again at the end of 2 Timothy, where Paul says that the teaching of Hymenaeus and a guy named Philetus had spread like gangrene. <laughs> Let me just say here that if you are teaching people the true gospel and your teaching is spreading, that's a good thing because you're giving people life. But if you're preaching that... <coughs> the true gospel, we wouldn't say that your preaching, your teaching is spreading like gangrene. That's, that, I don't know if that sounds negative to you, but that sounds really negative to me. So Paul's choice of words about Hymenaeus helps us to understand that Hymenaeus was not teaching a pure, simple, life-giving gospel because gangrene doesn't give life. It gives death. And when a leg of a, of an, uh, or an arm is gangrenous, you cut it off before it kills the patient. And that's what Paul did with Hymenaeus and Alexander and their deadly twisting of the gospel. If you look again at verse 20, you'll see that Paul took a very drastic step with these two men. He handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. There's going to be more conversation about this in small groups, so you may want to go to small group and and get an edge on this and understand it better. But if that sounds harsh to you, handing someone over to Satan, if that sounds harsh to you, we're going to do this again. That's because it is harsh. That's a pretty harsh step. I've never taken that step with any one of you yet. No, I wouldn't. I, you know what? That's a pretty harsh step. It's harsh, but it's really nothing more or less than, than Paul following his own advice to the churches in Galatia. Galatians 1, 6 to 9. 
I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that's pre- that we preach to you, then let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say it again. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. As believers, Hymenaeus and Alexander had been under God's blessing, but Paul then handed them over to Satan and brought them under God's curse because of what they were presently teaching other people. Remember the story that I told you earlier about the man of God and the old prophet? I tend to believe that Paul had that story in mind when he wrote those words. In that story, the man of God had clear instructions from God that he shouldn't eat or drink anything while he was in Bethel. So it was clear to the man of God what God had already said. But then the old prophet came along and convinced the man of God to come back to his house and eat. And how did the old prophet convince the man of God to to disobey God's word? The old prophet told the, the man of God that and angel had told him to feed the man of God in Bethel, even though God has clearly said don't eat or drink. Notice what Paul says here in Galatians. If we apostles or even an angel from heaven preach another gospel to you, then let that angel, that person or that angel be accursed. In the case of the old prophet and the man of God, it was the old prophet who did the deceiving, but it was the man of God who paid the price for allowing himself to be deceived. And that's why I keep pulling on you. That's why I continue to pull on. Because I, I think the surest way to not end up deceiving somebody else is to take your stand and not allow someone to deceive you. And I've talked a lot this morning about being tolerant and being intolerant. And, and as we draw this to a close, and I really am drawing this to a close, there's just one more thing that I, that I need to say. I, you know the guy who spoke here last week? His name's Brian McKenzie, and... And he and I have spent hours together fellowshipping around God's Word, and, and I'm truly looking forward to working with him more closely in, uh, in the months to come. But there's just one thing that I don't understand about that guy, and I have to say this this morning, John L., and his wife is here, and I, I, he, she'll probably tell him what I said. It's one thing that I don't understand about that guy. He doesn't like coffee. He doesn't like Coffee. He doesn't like coffee. Are you taking notes back there? Write that down. He doesn't like coffee. Well, thank you, but that's not what we're talking about, is it, Janelle? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Defending him. Write it down. He doesn't like coffee. You remember Steve Saint? That guy who came and and preached at our missions conference, taught during our, our missions conference? Uh, here at our church, Steve is another good friend of mine, but he doesn't like coffee either. And I have to say that I don't understand either of those men and their decision to dislike something that for me is the nectar of the gods. I mean, come on! I'll never understand why they don't like coffee, but please hear me. I'm willing to, to tolerate their dislike of coffee. And I hope that they'll be willing to tolerate my love for that heavenly brew that they don't like. You know, in this day and age, we're supposed to say, you do your truth and I'll do mine. That's what we say. But based on what we've seen this morning, Paul apparently didn't get that memo. 
You see, we've been saying, we've been talking like Paul saw himself as being at war, but that would be an understatement. Paul didn't just see himself as being at war. Paul declared war on the enemies of the gospel. When the gospel was under attack, Paul took aim at the people who were attacking the gospel and was willing to go to any length to keep the gospel, the pure and simple message that it's, that's been passed down to us today. And I am so thankful. I'm so thankful this morning that Paul defended the pure and simple message of the gospel because if he hadn't, the people who were perverting the gospel would have succeeded. And the pure, simple message of the gospel would no longer be available to us today. The most precious message in the universe came under attack. And Paul stopped at nothing to defend it. And the older I become, the more determined I am to make sure that my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, my great-great-grandchildren will still have the opportunity to hear that pure, simple message that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that means that I will not allow myself to be deceived or to stay confused about the Gospel. And I'm praying that the story of the old prophet and the man of God will hit home in us today as we make up our minds to defend the truth that's been revealed. So take your stand today, believe the gospel, and then maintain a good conscience by allowing the gospel to change your life. And in closing, let me read the passage to you one more time, and I promise I'll be done. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about me so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Will you stand with me in the presence? I apologize for going so long, but this is so important, so absolutely vital. I hope you won't go away because I went too long. I, I did defend the gospel. You've got to give me that much credit. right? God bless you all as we head out those doors. Let's pray. Father and our God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness in our hearts and lives. Thank you for these good people who are here. God, I pray that you would do a work in every single heart. And if there are those here who haven't believed the gospel, may this be the day that they take their stand and set aside everything else they're depending on and depend entirely, completely, and only on the finished work of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection on their behalf. And then, God, as we go out there and begin to talk to people, help us to look for people with whom we can share that simple message so that they can come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved from their sins because God, Christ Jesus, came into this world to save sinners. Thank you, Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Got this tradition. That's, uh, I've been doing this too long. To, uh, anyway, uh, if, if I'm the coach, we've just huddled up. We've agreed on a play. We're going to go out there. We're going to share the gospel. We're going to share the simple gospel. And... Uh, all that's left, I guess, after the huddle is for me to say, ready? ready. Go get him, Potter's house. <laughs>